The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Good morning, church. Can you believe it? That Advent... It's already here. You'll have to forgive me if I'm a little amped up this morning. We just came off of, first of all, great time of worship, but we just came off of a, of a seminar this morning talking about the atonement. It doesn't get much better than that, and I'm a little bit amped up. So if you missed it, shame on you. You got to come next week. Uh, but we've had such a great time. I'm, I'm so glad you're here. I want to make one quick announcement before we jump in this morning, and that is we are blessed to have some of our kiddos in our service this morning. Uh, So the first Sunday of every month, some of our elementary age kids come and they join us and we love this. And so if if you're a kiddo in the room, listen to me, I am so glad you're here. I am so glad. I I get excited every time that you guys get to join us. Um, And if you're a parent of a kiddo in the room, hear me, I am so excited for this. All right, I know that sometimes we have this, this we're just anxious about it. Please don't. I love their energy. We could use more of that. So uh, that's okay. I do want to make one quick announcement about that. And at the back table, the connect table, there is, um, actually it's on the Bible table, there's a a bucket with some um, coloring materials and and stuff to kind of go along with what we're doing. So if you're a parent in the room, your kiddos are in here and you'd like for them to kind of join along, Make sure to go back there. You can go anytime and grab one of those, and I hope, I hope they serve you well this morning. Um, Advent is here, and I love this time of year. I absolutely love this time of year. I love walking through this as a church together. Advent, the term Advent, uh, means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. It's this time, this season that the church historically, um, for the weeks leading up to Christmas, is called this season Advent. And it's this season of expectation. It's this season of anticipation. Because not only do we look back on the fact that, that our Savior came into the world, uh, born of a virgin, word became flesh, not only do we look back on that and we celebrate that, but we look ahead to that day when he will return, when he is coming again just as he promised, only this time, not as a baby, but as a king. So this is the season where we turn our hearts, we look forward, and um, I can't wait to walk through this as a church together. Um, If you have your Bibles, would you grab them? And we will eventually find ourselves in Psalm 13. Eventually. We got some ground to cover before we get there. But you can find your place with me in Psalm 13. I want to begin our time this morning by telling you a story, a big story. Uh, In fact, telling you the story. Oftentimes, we look at our Bible in scenes. Here's what I mean by that. We look at our Bible and we talk about that scene or that book or that chapter or that verse. We look at our Bible in these parts and and we study the parts and, and that is awesome. Don't stop doing that. Like, we love that. We, we, we look at these scenes in, in our Bible, but sometimes we fail to take these scenes and these parts and to bring them back and to ask the question, how do these fit together as a whole? 
How do these scenes fit into the larger narrative together? It's like studying a 10-minute clip of a three-hour movie. Like, it's awesome that you do that. But it's really important that you can take that and now plug it back into the movie as a whole. Uh, For example, we, we, uh, we know about David and his Goliath. We know about Jonah in his well. Uh, We know about Noah in his boat. But some of us are just not quite sure how how those relate to each other. Which one happened first? Right? Uh, Some of us, we we don't know how to put this together. It's it's like missing the forest for the trees when when we approach this. And, And sometimes we fail to see this grand plot unfolding. And so what I would like to do is to walk through the grand narrative, the grand and incredible story, because follow me. This, this story, although it spans thousands of years and although it spans thousands of pages, I get that, this story is absolutely critical if we are going to understand Advent. It is absolutely critical that we understand the story. Going back to our movie analogy, if all you had was 10-minute clips, it's really hard for you to be enthralled in expectation with plot lines thickening. You can't do that. Well, the same is true with us. If we don't know the grand picture, the grand story, it's really hard to approach a season of advent and expectation. And so we're going to look at our grand story, the story, the whole story, at least from a 30,000-foot view. All right, we're, we're going to look at this story. Now, obvious dis- disclaimer here, I'm obviously not going to cover some of your favorite moments of this story. I mean, I could, we'd be here all day though, and I'm okay with that, but I don't think you are. Um, we would be here for a very long time. Instead, we're going to look at this 30,000-foot view of this story as it unfolds. So, Let's start together. Creation. Our story starts with God. And I, want, I don't want you to hear me wrong. It starts with only God. It starts with nothing void blank. And then God spoke and created everything out of nothing. Creation. And when he created it, not only did he create it, but it was all good, really good, exceedingly good. Things were designed and planned perfectly. They were designed to function together. It's like a clock that everything is just in tune and the cogs are just perfectly in line. It's like a symphony where everyone's on the same sheet of music. Every instrument is tuned perfectly and it's beautiful and it comes together. It was so beautiful. It was wonderful and it broke. The fall. Uh, Man and woman that were created in the image of God. They were created in the image of God, chose to willfully say no to what God told them to do in God's design, said, no, we want to go our own way. We think that we know better. And all of the sudden, that clock, those cogs working perfectly, just went, busted out of sync. All of a sudden, that symphony, it's not only that their instruments weren't in tune, but it's like the whole symphony forgot what page we're on. And it just, it fell apart. And as a result of this, the man and the woman were sent out of the presence of God. They were sent out, and this this brokenness just spiraled all the way through our, our world and through the fabric of our world. 
Now, understand that God in that moment had every right to just say, I am done. Blot this thing out. Let's start again. But hear me. God had a better plan. God had a big and a beautiful plan. And church, what I want us to see is this book is about God revealing his big and beautiful plan to us. God has a plan. Now, our story continues as humanity just kind of goes spiraling down. Violence. It took like one generation for some dude to get murdered. Sexual sin, pride, lies, uh, all of it, wickedness, all of these things that were directly against the way of God just started unfolding. Mankind was truly living into that brokenness. Sinners by nature, sinners by choice. It got so bad at one point that there was literally one person on the face of the planet that still followed after God. Noah. Noah. God told this man, this, this Noah, to go build a boat, get your family, put them on it, get some animals, get them on it because I'm about to bring the rain. I'm about to bring the rain. I'm about to bring judgment on those people who hate me. I'm about to bring it, and, and, and so God did, and it was like the grand restart button that, that God pushed. It was like um, this, this grand start over moment, but remember, God was not done, and God has a plan, a big and beautiful plan, and he was setting the stage for it. We look ahead, and the plan continues with a man named Abram, who would later be changed to his name would be Abraham. God called this man out of his house, told him to go, and the cool thing is he did it. He did it. He, he, he left, and, and God said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and not only am I going to bless you, get this. Remember, God has a plan. I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm going to bless the nations through you. God had a plan, and it continued on. And so you would think all would be smooth from this point on. Wrong. We are at the very beginning of your Bible, by the way. This covenant continued through Abraham's family, his kids and his kids and his kids and his kids. And the family grew from a family to millions And they found themselves in Egypt. And this was not on vacation. This was in slavery. All of God's people in slavery. God is faithful. And he has a plan. This wasn't exactly what I would have done if I was going to bless the world through this people. But God has a plan and he knows better. So God calls this man named Moses. Moses was this self-doubting man who admittedly was bad at talking. And that was the guy that God was going to use to lead millions of people out of slavery in Egypt. And that is exactly what happened. It's almost like God has a sense of humor or or it's almost like God was saying, you know what? This is my plan. This is my doing. I am fixing the brokenness because I am good. And it's not based on the goodness of any person. He's not good at talking. I am. And so God, through Moses, delivers his people miraculously. He has a plan. God was going to be their God. And they were going to be his people. And through them, the whole world was going to be blessed. Get this, it gets better. God then gives them the law. And so, like I said at the beginning, God created mankind to function well and like like cogs, right? He functioned them like that. Well, now God says, you want to know how I designed you to live? Here you go. 
Here's the law. We call it the Torah. We, we see it in our Bibles. God gives this, them this grand design for them to live out as he has called them to live. How incredible is that? These, the people, they were free. Not only were they free, but now they, God was like, you know what? This is exactly the best way for you to live and to flourish as my people. What could go wrong? I mean, that's awesome. This was God's people. This was God's plan. The problem was they were still broken. The problem was that they found every opportunity, it seemed, to mess this up. Don't judge them. We're getting to you next. But God had a plan. And it just so happened that everything was setting the stage for this plan to to happen. So God's people had their ups and downs. As you read your Bible, it seems like they had a little more downs than they had ups, right? But this was their journey. This was their plan. And it seemed like they're in constant turmoil and in war. But remember, God has a plan. Now, God's people were under the king, God, Yahweh. That was their king. They didn't have an earthly king. Instead, they had judges. So in your Bible, the book of Judges kind of recounts this time where men like, like Samson, women like Deborah, we have just judging over God's people, governing them so they can function well, um, which worked not so great because God's people began to complain and whine and we just want a king like everyone else. You have to read that in a whiny voice when you get to it. But they wanted an earthly king, and so God graciously gives it to them. He gives them a king because, again, he has a plan. So King Saul, King David, Solomon, and on and on and on it goes. King after king rules over God's people. Some of them were good kings. When I say some, I mean some of them were good kings. The vast majority, though, as you see this trajectory in this story, were not. And they would run after sin. They would run after the world around them, trying to be like everyone else. And we see these kings leading God's people, doing the same thing that they did in the garden, which is man and woman saying, no, God, I got this. We're going to go this way. That's what the kings did. And they, they, they went, and, and hear me, things got bad. Things got bad. Eventually, God's people, God's nation split. What on earth is that? This is God's people. And they split north from south, Judah, Israel. Split. All the time, king after king seemed to just continue to ignore. Continue to ignore God's design. How could this happen? God's design, God's plan delivered them miraculously out of Egypt. And here they are messing things up, splitting up, and now God has two peoples. What is going on? Why is this happening? And then get this, God sends prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to come to them. Prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, all of these guys just coming and saying, turn back to God. He still has a plan. He still has a plan. He gave us his design, his law. Repent and turn back. Turn back. But by and large, they were ignored. Warning after warning after warning. But hear me, God had a plan. Hopefully you've heard that a couple hundred times already. God had a plan. Um, Because these prophets, not only were they telling them, turn back. 
turn back. But they were also saying, look forward because a Messiah is coming. They began to proclaim, hey, the day of the Lord is coming. There is a greater plan in motion. There is, he is going to fix this. He's going to fix what is broken. He is coming. Be ready. Be ready, prophet after prophet. I think of Isaiah, who's, who's just relentlessly calling them to look forward to the Messiah, the coming Messiah. He's coming. And again, the message was rejected until the unthinkable happened. The unthink- if you were watching this movie, this would be the part of the movie you go, what? Didn't see that plot turn coming. God's people, the people who he's going to bless the whole world through, right? God's chosen people were conquered and taken into captivity. Uh, we see the northern kingdom, Israel, conquered by the Assyrians, 720 BC. Then in 586, the southern kingdom of Judah, conquered by the Babylonians. How on earth could that have happened? How on earth could, put yourself in their shoes. God, you have this plan, you delivered us, you're here, you're, you're moving and Conquered? Captivity? It looked bleak. All the while, prophets still continuing to yell out, out, Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming, get ready, get ready. It's as if the whole world, all of creation was waiting for this moment. Go back to the movie theme here. It's like the music is crescendoing up. You sense something is happening. You sense something has to happen because it's in the darkest of bleak moments and the whole world just groaning for resolution just groaning. Our story is literally hanging in suspense, and then the absolutely unthinkable thing happens. You ready? Here it is. Hear it? Deafening, agonizing, excruciating, and painful silence. Almost 500 years of it. Almost 500 years. God didn't send any more prophets. He didn't send any more messengers. It was like it all led up to this moment and then the bottom falls out. So in your Bible, the last book is Malachi or Malachi, however you want to say that. The first book of your New Testament is Matthew. And there should be this little page that separates that. That page, that single page, 500 years, nearly, of silence. Excruciating silence. Can you imagine all of history leading up to this moment? Everyone screaming out, the Messiah is coming, and then all of a sudden you look around and you're like, silence. It's like the climax of the movie is silence. That shouldn't happen. What is happening? The, the whole Old Testament pointed us to this grand plan and then God would go silence and the people of God would be forced to sit in a 500-year waiting room. What a plan. Church, what do you do in the silence? What do you do in the silence? A better question is this. How do you find hope in the waiting how do you find hope in the waiting? What do you do when you look at all of the things that God has promised? Then you are yet 
here just waiting, in the waiting, feeling like you're ignored and feeling like God's not going to come through on his word. What do you do? How do you have hope in the answer, in the waiting? How do you scream out to God, God, can I get some kind of response, some sign, something, anything? Have you been there? In those moments, anyone who has been there, the silence is agonizing. It is agonizing. And the question in this silence, the question that this silence forces us to ask is how do we find hope in the waiting? Which, by the way, I don't need to tell you this, but we hate, you hate waiting. We are so used to instant gratification. You want a, a, a sociological experiment? I want to take you all and put you in a room that has slow internet connection. <laughs> that would be sanctifying. We'd be losing our minds, I, me included. It just sets me off when I type in something and it just loading. Load, oh, don't get me started. We are used to instant gratification. Some of us in that moment would be quoting things like, in this world, we're going to be facing trials, right? This is us because we're used to, we're not conditioned. We are not only not conditioned to wait, we are conditioned not to wait. This is, this is us. And then we get to Advent, this, this, this season that's all about the here but not yet, the, the already but not yet. In other words, this whole season is built on the expectation and hope of the waiting. The hope in the waiting. So we're not done with our story. Let's continue on. After 500 years, 500 years, America is 240-something years old, so multiply us by two, and that's how long God was silent, just for some perspective there. After 500 years, the silence is broken. The silence is broken. There was a boy born to Elizabeth and Zachariah named John. It had been so many years since the, the people of God had a prophet. So many years. And after 500 years of silence, God gave him another prophet. He gave him another prophet. His name was John. He would come to be known as John the Baptist. And this was a quirky guy. Quirky guy. Uh, but his whole purpose... His whole task was simply to prepare the way of the Lord. How refreshing is that message in a moment of silence? His whole task, that's what he was sent to do. Finally, God was speaking through his prophets again. Finally, the Lord is coming. Make way, prepare the way. But John the Baptist wasn't the only baby to break the silence. Then Jesus Christ, the Messiah was born, born of the Virgin Mary, fulfilling so many prophecies, all of those prophets screaming out. Then Jesus comes to fulfill them. It was the grand story of Scripture that was unfolding before our very eyes. Jesus was born. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. Jesus then lives his life. He knew no sin. He was tempted in every way that we were, but yet knew no sin. And just because Jesus did not sin, didn't do any wrongdoing, does not mean that he was loved by everyone around him. No, that's not the story we read. Instead, we read that the world rejected him. If you recall, God has a plan. 
If you recall, he called a people to himself, a people who would not be faithful, but a people to whom he would be faithful. And so Jesus comes, and he's despised, and he's rejected. He is mocked. He is beaten, tried, ridiculed, and although he was innocent, he was condemned as guilty. He was given a cross, his own cross, to carry up the hill to die. And he marched up with that cross on his back willingly. Willingly he chose because God again had a plan. His hands and his feet were nailed to that cross where he willingly hung. Crucifixion under the Romans was excruciating, but the single most excruciating part of all of this was the fact that the wrath of the Father was poured out on him for our sins. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So he hangs there willingly for your sin. He breathes his last and he cries out, it is finished. It is finished. It indeed was finished. His sacrificial work was finished. He was then taken to a borrowed tomb where he uh, borrowed it for three days. But the grave could not hold him because after three days, death was defeated. We sang about that and oh my, death was defeated and our Savior lived. He rose He rose, the stone was rolled away. Then, get this, he appeared to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Turning the the greatest, the single most dark moment in all of history into the single greatest triumph in all of history. Then we see that Jesus ascends into heaven. After appearing to all of these, these people, he ascends into heaven proclaiming two things. One, he says, I'm coming again. Be ready, because I'm coming again. I will return. And two, he says, you need to go out and tell the whole world about my good news. Go out and tell the world. Proclaim the gospel. And he says, look, I'm about to send you out, and you're not going out alone. I'm about to send the Holy Spirit on you to accomplish this mission. We see Acts 1.8, that we are empowered and equipped to be God's image bearers, to be God's gospel bearers, to be God's witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then he says, remember, you're not alone, because I'm about to send my spirit, and it's actually better for you that I leave. And that's exactly what happened. Shortly after, there was a day called Pentecost, where the spirit of God, the same one that Jesus promised, came and fell on believers, equipping them, indwelling them, empowering them, just as Jesus said that he would. And then get this, the church spreads. I mean, like, starts with like a home group and then just affects the globe. That's what happened. Just spreads out. People hear the good news. Churches are planted, all preparing the way for Jesus to return. The church is spreading and going and going and going again. It feels like everything has led up to this moment because it has. We are all looking up, looking up. All of creation is leaning into this moment. It's that second climax of the movie here. We're getting there. We're getting there. And you know what happens? Silence. The wait. For 2,000 years, 
We have looked up to the heavens in waiting and in hope and in expectation that he's going to come. He's going to do it. He's going to come. Does that sound familiar? In fact, this is where you find yourself in this grand story. This is where you are in this story, and Advent just seems to remind us of that. And so I will ask again, how do you find hope in the waiting? Not only are, it's just every single one of us in waiting, and not only is every single one of us terrible at waiting, but let's face it, every single one of us will go through tough seasons in our life where the silence and the waiting just becomes personal. Um, seasons where we just don't hear an answer. When we cry out to God, where are you? When are you going to show up? When are you going to step in? When are you going to intervene? You don't have to answer this out loud, but have you been there? Have you been there? Right off the bat, I need you to say this, because some of you, this is the reason you're here. You need to hear this. Silence does not equal absence. Silence does not mean absence. And often it is these moments of waiting, these moments of agonizing waiting that are God-ordained and that teach us to trust him all the more. Silence does not mean absence. And so we're left with this question, how do we wait well? How do we have hope in the waiting? So I want us to look together. I told you we'd get there. Psalm 13. I want us to look at this together, and, and this is a bit like a journal entry from David, and, and I believe, I believe we are going to be able to relate well to this. Look at this. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Do you hear the honesty in that? We've said this before, but sometimes we feel like we need to PG our prayers. We need to like clean up and get in a good frame of mind before we approach our God. And then we read the Psalms and realize, wait, they came in honesty before the Lord. This is David coming in honesty, and, and he's, actually, he's actually saying, God, you are ignoring me. Church, God can handle your honesty. God can handle our honesty. He has invited us, and you hear this raw pain in David as he's accusing God of ignoring him, of hiding his face from him, of, of hiding his plan from him. And then he says this, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David is continuing to plead for God in this silence, to hear him, to answer him. It's like David's reminding him. I don't know if you've ever done this, reminding him of what's going to happen if he doesn't show up. God, I'm going to die. God, it's not going to go well. God, this is going to fall apart. My enemies will win. Let me remind you. I know you're sovereign, but let me just remind you. This is not going to end well. And, and I don't know if you've ever done that. God, just let me remind you real quick, if you don't show up right now, what's going to happen? We can all relate to this. David is desperate, yet God is silent. 
And I believe Advent can be summed up in the next portion of, of Psalm 13. As we look at this final portion, remember, you need to remember something. David is still desperate, and God is still silent. In other words, David is still in that waiting room, just as we are today. Listen to this, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. How do we wait well? How do we have hope in the waiting when we are desperate and God is silent? How? Listen to David's words here. First, he says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. Meaning no matter what we go through, no matter what, I'll put it like this, no matter what we don't know, no matter what we don't see, no matter what we don't understand, the thing we do know is that God loves us. God loves me. Even when I know nothing else, I know that. How do we wait well? Well, we don't let what we don't know take away from what we do know, and that is you are loved by God. No matter how long and silent that waiting is, you know you are loved by God. God loves you. He has told you repeatedly, and he has proven it repeatedly. You are loved by God. His love is steadfast. We can trust this no matter what we go through, no matter what you're currently facing. Regardless, we stand firm on the thing that we do know, which is God loves you. We stand on this. From the Old Testament saints, they were waiting for the Messiah. They were standing on the hope that they knew that they were loved by God. That 500 years of silence is tough, but they knew, I am loved by God. I have been delivered by God, and he will come through on his words. I know this, and I know that I am loved. For the New Testament saints, for us, we're able to stand in the fact and the hope that we are loved by God even when we know nothing else. And listen to this, because of that, in the midst of his trouble, David says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. He doesn't end there, because he says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. David here is looking to the fact that he will soon know that salvation, um, salvation that is yet to come, that is future. My heart is going to rejoice when you show up. When we truly know that God loves us perfectly, we can celebrate our deliverance that is still yet to come. We can celebrate the deliverance that is still yet to unfold. The second thing we need to see here is knowing God's love for us will lead to confidence in us. David, who is currently in his waiting room, is standing on the fact that he will rejoice in what he knows is coming. He knows this. So how do we wait? Well, how do we have hope in the waiting? Well, we stand on God's love for us, and that fact gives us the ability to know with confidence that we will soon rejoice in a salvation that is coming, in a deliverance that is coming. And think of this, church. As a child of God, whatever you are going through, there is this universal truth that is unshakable, and that is in this room. If you say, I'm a child of God, that means you are loved by God. And that means you will know this salvation that David says, I will rejoice. So in these moments, we look forward. Church, that is just powerful. And David's not even done yet. David's not done. Then he says, I will sing to the Lord. That part just blew me away. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I don't know about you, but most of the time, 
the very last, the single last thing that I want to do in moments of waiting, in moments when I don't have answers, in moments of confusion, the last thing I want to do is sing in the waiting room. That's the last, I think of a, like a DMV where you're sitting in one of those chairs just waiting. Last thing I want to be doing is singing. I promise you. The last thing, like are you kidding This is not the time to start up a good old-fashioned worship service. But that's exactly here. And and follow me, this is not churchy language for David. David doesn't use churchy language and say, you know, well, we'll just worship, we'll praise be to Jesus. He's not doing that. He's literally coming before him and, and he says, I will sing because he has dealt bountifully. I want you to notice with me the tenses. I will sing, future I'm going to sing. This is future. This is present. This is, I, I'm going to sing. And then he says, why? Because he has dealt, past tense. Here's what this means. The third thing that we need to see, how do we wait well? How do we wait in hope? Is that we realize that God's faithfulness yesterday, God's faithfulness yesterday fuels our hope for today. God's past goodness inspires my present and my future hope and worship. David looks back on the way that God has provided for him. And he says, I'm going to just start singing and worshiping now because I know my God and I know his love for me. In the waiting room, singing both expresses and increases our hope in Christ. Let me say that again. In the waiting room, singing to God, praising him, it both, it both expresses and increases our hope in Christ. I know, you're in a hard, I, I know I'm in a hard spot. I know I'm waiting for you to show up, God, but I know you love me. I know that you will save me, and I will rejoice in that because I know that you are good. How do we wait well? You rest in knowing that the God of the universe loves you, and because of this truth, if God loves you, who then can stand against you? This is how we wait well. For those of you in a tough season right now, For those of you who are here and you're just pleading with God, please fix things. Please come through. Please just respond. Please don't hear me wrong. Um, This is not easy. It's not easy to be in a tough season and to feel like God is just not bringing resolution. This is not easy. Um, As we consider the people of God in the waiting waiting room throughout all of Scripture, that page between Malachi and Matthew, as we think of that page, it's not easy. It is not easy. But here's what I'm trying to say this morning. You are loved by God, and therefore, there is a reason for hope. Christmas, um, at Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Christ. And, and again, we look back on that moment when the whole, room was, or the whole world was in a waiting room in silence, and then the silence is broken by this baby crying out. And, and, and we look at the way that God made good on his promise. We look on the fact that we were not forgotten. Church, Christmas celebrates broken silence. Christmas celebrates broken silence, the silence that was broken by a baby's cry. We have such a reason for incredible hope. Because this is the season that we remind ourselves of God's great plan. Like I said 500 times at the beginning of this message, God has a plan. God has a plan. God has a plan, which makes the nativity scene. 
Every time, every time we see the nativity scene with Mary, Joseph, sheep, baby Jesus, wise men, shepherds, all of it. The nativity scene is the greatest reminder in the world that God will make good on his word. That our God is good, that our God is trustworthy, and that silence does not mean absence. So for those of you in a waiting room this morning, for those of you, I want every time this season that you see a nativity scene, Every time that you see a nativity scene, I want it to be this grand reminder to you that your God has not forgotten about you. Your God has not forgotten about you and he will save you. For all of us who are looking to the return of Christ, let the nativity scene be a reminder to us that God has not forgotten. And in the meantime, here's what we can do. We can sing. We can trust we can go ahead and rejoice, and we can have hope. God loves us and has not forgotten about us. Over the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about broken silence. We're going to be celebrating broken silence. And here in a few moments, we're going to take communion. And, and I want this to be a visual representation, a visual reminder to you of broken silence, of the fact that our God came that he loves us and, and hear me, that he will come again. That he will come again. Because just as that silence was broken by the birth of a baby, we look forward to the day when the silence is broken by a trumpet and his return. We hope for this in the Advent. We wait in hope. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the hope that we have through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the grand story that has unfolded in front of us. We thank you for where we find ourselves in that grand story. We thank you that you have had a plan before the foundation of the world, as your word tells us. And Lord, right now, we sit in a waiting room. For all of us, we sit here and we wait for you to return. And for some of us, we sit here and we wait in a tough season of our life waiting for you to speak and to show up and to bring resolution. Well, Lord, we know that as followers of you, we are not promised to know all the answers and to have all the things the moment we ask. That's not the promise. The promise is that we have you. And so even in moments of silence, we are yours you are ours and we have hope because we are loved by you. So Lord, right now, um, I just pray for every person who is here who, who is waiting to hear from you, waiting for a response and answer. I just pray that you bring comfort. And as we talked about this morning, I pray you bring hope. And Lord, as we turn our attention to the, to the communion tables, your son told us that as often as we do this, we proclaim his death until he comes again. And so, Lord, how fitting is it for us as we begin Advent, as we begin turning our heart in expectation and anticipation for your return, that we approach this table. How fitting is it that we get to celebrate the communion 
in this way. Lord, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.